This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, I'll be talking about self-ID and the union's new battle line, discussing the effect of Covid on British prisons, and asking whether BBC Radio 3 is dumbing down. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine, Ian McWhirter writes in the aftermath of the government's decision to block the Scottish Gender Reform Bill from gaining royal assent. He says the gender wars will test the harmony between England and Scotland, and joins me now alongside Observer columnist Sonia Soda. Ian, to start with, could you give our listeners an understanding of what the Scottish Gender Reform Bill aims to achieve and why the UK government decided to block it? Right, well, Nicola Sturgeon, um, you know, she is sincere in her support for minority groups and transgender people, but she's a, a nationalist politician at the same time, and this legislation has the effect of creating a kind of border issue, portraying the UK Tory government as in some way transphobic and bigoted and right-wing, and also running roughshod over Scottish democracy, because the Section 35 never been used before. It's, it's, the, it's usually called the nuclear option. Now, what Scotland has done is they've introduced something called self-ID, self-identification for trans people. That means in Scotland now, you can, uh, at the age of 16, you can become... If you're a man, you can become a woman or vice versa, uh, merely by stating the fact. You don't have to go through any kind of medical intervention and you can do so after three months. South of the border, it's very different. First of all, you have to persuade a medical panel that you have gender dysphoria, it's a medical condition, and then you have to live in your new gender, your new sex, for a minimum of two years. So the situation now, as things stand, is that you have different definitions of sex north and south of the border. Because people in Scotland, say a 16-year-old who changes their gender from girl to boy, once they cross the border, under present circumstances, under the present law, they would have to change their legal sex, change their legal sex at the border, because the gender recognition certificate that they've received in Scotland will not apply in England. Now, that is an obvious absurdity. You know, you can't have people being inspected at the border for their sex, for their gender certificates. You can't have people being sent back because... In England, they're men, and in Scotland, they're women. Because what they basically want to do is introduce self-ID by the back door, as it will bounce the rest of the UK into accepting self-ID, because it would just be too difficult to, as I say, inspect these invalid gender recognition certificates in England. Having people with different sex in north and south of the border, it just doesn't make sense. So they assumed that England would go along with this, but I think they misjudged. And I think it's important to be clear on what it means for someone to change their legal sex um, and why it's something that the UK government are concerned about, but also that plenty of grassroots women's groups in Scotland have raised concerns about, have actually gone ignored, I think, by the Scottish government. So, so I think it's very important to say that all trans people in the UK have very robust protections against discrimination under the Equality Act, under what's called the protected characteristic of gender reassignment. And that's just the same as the protections that disabled people have under disability, the protections that women 
have under sex, for example, the protections that you know people of colour have under race. So those protections already exist under the Equality Act. What a gender recognition certificate does is it changes your sex for legal purposes, for most legal purposes. And we now know as a result of a really important court ruling in Scotland that it means that it changes your sex for the purposes of the Equality Act. So that is why Scottish women have got concerns about this on the impact of women and girls, because it impacts, for example, it changes the legal, the threshold at which it becomes lawful to exclude somebody male from female only services. It changes the ability of providers like NHS providers to provide genuinely single sex care to women who request it. And that's very important for disabled women. It also changes things the way that provisions in the Equality Act around pay discrimination work. So the reason why the UK government has stepped in is because of this very cross-border issue that Ian's just highlighted, but also because the Scottish reforms, discrimination lawyers believe, affect the rights of Scottish women and girls that are set out not to be discriminated against in the Equality Act. So that's where the clash comes. So there's that practical issue of is there a practical interaction between what the Scottish Government wants to do in terms of these gender reforms and the Equality Act and then there is a separate constitutional question about whether that interaction justifies the UK Government triggering Section 35 of the Scotland Act. Ian, uh, Sonia mentioned there anger from grassroots women's groups against Nicola Sturgeon's bill. Do you think that Sturgeon might have perhaps misinterpreted the degree to which SNP supporters would go along with this? I mean, presumably there's there's quite a lot of SNP supporters who don't support the bill or don't see what it has to do really with Scottish independence. I mean, and you mentioned in your piece that Alex Salmond is already trying to kind of manoeuvre to, to hoover up some of the, the, the pro-independence support that might be turned off by, by, by this bill. Yeah, well, yeah, both the SNP Equalities Convener, Lynn Anderson, and their women's convener, Caroline McAllister, both left the SNP. They were elected by the SNP membership. They were sidelined because of their opposition to self-ID, and that's basically the reason they ended up joining Alex Salmon's Breakaway Alba group. So, you know, this has split the SNP already quite fundamentally. It is a very divisive issue. You know, it led to the most acrimonious debates and all-night sessions in the Scottish Parliament, which have never happened before. Um, it's widely unpopular, and more than 60% in recent polls of Scots oppose the idea of allowing 16-year-olds to change their gender by self-identification. And I think that though there has been a kind of lag in public opinion, because for most people, remember, this is something they've only really come to terms with. For most people, they've accepted this is just about trans rights, and it's just about being nice to transgender people, um, allowing them to be free from discrimination. But as Sonia has, has rightly said, they already have protections, full protections. Uh, the hyster- hysterical response in Scotland from the SNP, I think, you know, belies their unease about this. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon saying it's a full frontal assault on devolution. I mean, that is nonsense. Section 35 is part of the 1998 devolution of the Scotland Act, the 1998 Act, which the SNP supported and voted for. It is part of devolution. And these these anomalies arise whenever you have quasi-federal systems and they have to be resolved, not least to ensure the security of women and girls in England. So, so Sonia, you, you mentioned earlier this confusion between gender and sex, legal sex, the legal definition mm. of sex. Is that, do you think, the, the fundamental crux of the matter, particularly when it comes to the opposition from 
women's groups, this this confusion in mm. the bill, that even though it's called the Gender Reform Bill, it is actually not so much about gender as it is about legal definition of yeah, sex. Yeah, it's changing, it's allowing people to change their legal sex. And I think it's important to say, just to clarify, that the, the law operates the same across the UK, the Equality Act, but it's if you change the process through which you change your legal sex, that's going to have a significant ramification on how the Equality Act operates. So it is true that you can, it's possible to exclude both males who identify as women who don't have a GRC and who have a gender recognition certificate from single sex services. The, The test for that in both England and Scotland is tougher if it's a male who's changed their sex legally than if it's a male who hasn't changed their legal sex but who identifies as a woman. So that's just like, that's really important to be clear in. But it is, it does go to the nub of the matter. And, you know, I think it's, that's why it's so important to be clear. This is a conflict of rights situation. And unfortunately, you know, for too long, the debate in Scotland has involved politicians like Sturgeon, for example, saying that women's concerns are invalid and refusing to acknowledge that there's a conflict of rights here, even though the courts themselves have acknowledged that there's a conflict of rights. And, you know, there's so often conflict of rights, people with competing needs, competing people with competing protected characteristics. And that is really what the Equality Act is there for. It's there to sort of step in and kind of mediate and for organisations to have a reference to a piece of law. You know, I think if, you know, feminists would have no problem, for example, if people want some form of, well, well, some feminists would have no problem, I think, if people want some form of recognition that they've got a different gender identity to their sex, that's fine. The issue at stake here is allowing people to change their legal sex because that does grant you significant rights under the Equality Act. It it grants males the right to be treated as though they were female for most legal purposes. And that's why you do see this clash with, for example, things like single sex spaces. So just on a very practical level, if you've got a lot more people or, you know, significantly more people, as the Scottish government think will happen, who have gender recognition certificates as a result of a self-ID reform, it becomes much more difficult for women to challenge males who, for example, use single sex changing rooms at the pool, you know, areas where women are undressing, single sex hospital wards, for example. And we did actually see a case in California where a convicted male sex offender, somebody who we know, now know was a convicted male sex offender, exposed himself in a female-only changing area in a Californian spa in front of a group of women that included a teenage girl. A woman complained about it and she was told, you're transphobic, that's a man, because it was somebody who'd changed their legal sex under Californian law. And it becomes much more difficult. So for men who abuse women who might exploit these reforms in bad faith, and we know that men who abuse women go to all sorts of lengths to sort of get the statuses and recognition that kind of earns them trust with women and in the eyes of the law it becomes much more difficult to challenge if you're a man who's who commits voyeurism who wants to expose himself it becomes much harder to challenge you if you say well I'm I'm legally female so I'm just getting naked in the space in the same way that you are you can't challenge me on this it's a fundamental change in social norms and balance of rights Ian, I'd like to get your view, if I may, on the Labour Party and all this, because it seems to me that the Labour Party in Westminster is under pressure at the moment. I mean, given that the Labour Party in the Scottish Parliament all voted for the bill, 
and and we saw as well Rosie Duffield in the Commons being jeered by SNP MPs, but also MPs in her own party. I mean, Starmer's staying quite quiet at the moment, but surely at some point Labour in Westminster are going to come to a clash on this issue, aren't they? Uh, well, yeah, and in Scotland. I mean, uh, Anna Sauer, the Scottish leader, believing that this was a sort of UK policy, that they're all, all, all together in SLFID, actually whipped Scottish MSPs to vote for this, whipped them to vote for an SNP piece of legislation. And now this week, Keir Starmer has turned around and said, well, no, I'm not, I'm not really happy about this. I'm a bit concerned. I don't like the idea of 16-year-old girls being able to go up to Scotland for a few months and come back as men. And I think what's happened is that, as I said, there's, a, there's definitely a lag here in public opinion because most people, they accept the propaganda that this is just about being nice to transgender people and removing them from discrimination. It's not about that. It's something much more fundamental that does affect women's rights and women's private and uh, single-sex spaces. And I think... What Labour has suddenly realised is that the opinions are changing here as people become educated about this. And um, uh, that's why you've had this, this squeaking U-turn from uh, Keir Starmer uh, this week. I mean, what's most interesting about this whole issue is that it really is, it cuts right across political boundaries. It cuts right across the nationalist-unionist debate. I and mean, there's now a kind of very articulate unionist coalition, if you like, of very articulate women north and south of the border who are arguing against this and say that, they're, you know, they have not been consulted. This is all taking place very much in-house, just between government, civil servants in particular, who have been captured by, by, by various groups like Stonewall, who have been campaigning for this for many years. Um, there's, a, as I say, a coalition of interest north and south of the border, but also parties are split very much internally. Theresa May, for example, supported self-ID and actually tried to persuade Rishi Sunak not to veto this bill, to go along with it. In the end, he, he was persuaded, and Keir Starmer has been persuaded, that actually women are the one, are the one group who's not really improperly consulted about this. And but in not theory, happy. and I'm sure there are many people who would, who would actually go along with this, but in theory, could you not be pro-self-ID, but also understand that it's just not workable to have the definition of what makes a man or what makes a woman be different depending on which part of the country you're in? I mean, you've got to imagine a situation where you have a group south of the border taking that interpretation of the Equality Act, trying to restrict people on the basis of biological sex, will not be able to do so if they have a, a gender recognition certificate coming from Scotland. I mean, how will they be able to say, well, look, this gender recognition certificate you have doesn't apply south of the border. You can't do that because it's a criminal offence to expose somebody's birth sex. I mean, I, you know, this is why it's, it's such a difficult issue now to deal with it and why really it has to be resolved legally, I think. Yes. Uh, Sonia, just, just finally, in an article for The Guardian, uh, in September, you said that if Sturgeon took up this issue, it would leave the door open for the Conservatives to become the champions of women's rights. Do you think your prophecy has come true? Well, well you were actually referring to the headline of my piece there, which, as you know, writers don't write themselves. But what I do think is that it does open the door to the Conservatives portraying themselves as defenders of women's rights. I think that's a big unknown in this, really, which is that we've not really seen this hit mainstream debate yet, this issue around legal sex changes, what it means for women's spaces, for example. And so I would say this issue has probably pretty low salient amongst general voters and I think as this becomes a bigger constitutional issue between the UK and Scotland and as probably this becomes 
potentially an issue between the Conservatives and Labour and Westminster as well. What's interesting is the extent to which people get switched on to this and, you know, the extent to which people are like, oh, hang on a sec, Keir Starmer maybe can't define what a woman is. I'm not so sure about that. So I would say that that really does remain to be seen, but I think it leaves both Sturgeon and the Labour Party, unless they come to a clearer position on this, a bit exposed in terms of whether they're able to say to the electorate, we really stand by women's single-sex spaces, for example. We think that they're something that women have had to fight for over decades, and we stand by women's rights, for example, to be able to access single-sex changing rooms at the pool or single, genuinely single-sex domestic abuse services or single-sex prisons. Well, Ian and Sonia, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Next... Why are our prisons still in lockdown? Charlie Taylor, His Majesty's Chief Inspector of Prisons, writes in the magazine this week that there is a post-COVID inertia inside the country's prisons and the institutions are failing both the inmates and the taxpayer. He joins me now alongside David James Smith, who is one of the first journalists to be allowed inside a prison under lockdown in 2020. Charlie, could you tell us a little bit about what you observed on some of your recent inspections? Yes, we've been really concerned. The, the pandemic restrictions finished in March last year, and we assumed that fairly quickly things would get back to normal. So prisoners would get back into education, they'd get back into workshop, so they'd be back into the sort of rehabilitative activities that you would expect them to be doing. But what we found, particularly actually in Category C training prisons, who really should be focused in on education, training, giving prisoners the skills they need when they come out. What we found in those jails is still very high levels of COVID-type restrictions. Prisoners often only being released in small groups, very little movement around the jail, and for the large part, many prisoners spending long parts of the day behind their doors, up to 22 hours a day in some cases. Um, Why do you think these prisons are still being run in that fashion? Is it because of a fear of COVID, or is it just an example of, I suppose, a laziness or inertia that, that um, is preventing them from, from going back to the way things were? I think there's a sort of post-COVID torpor within prisons. I, I think some of the momentum has been lost. I think it's been lost amongst prisoners. So I think many of them have got out of the habit of getting up, getting out, spending time in activities and are spending instead lots of their time lying on their beds, either sleeping or watching television. But I think particularly it's the leadership management within the prisons and within the prison service that is not really driving forward a return to proper activity within prisons. Mm. There are also issues in in some jails with things like staff recruitment. We also hear that staff retention is very poor in some jails, and also that there's some very inexperienced staff as well. But even in jails in parts of the country where there are no difficulties with recruitment, we're still seeing some real problems with getting people into activities. Mm. David, you were one of the first journalists to observe prisons under lockdown during the COVID pandemic, and you wrote a fascinating piece about it for the Sunday Times magazine. How different do these conditions that that Charlie just described, how different do they sound or how similar do they sound to what you observed in 2020? Well, they they sound very similar, to be perfectly frank. So uh, although I guess I'm not that surprised that, you know, there's a degree of inertia at the moment. I I had a sense when I was visiting the prisons, uh, which was a few months after lockdown began uh, in the autumn of 2020, that prisons were very slow to react, you know, that the the, the government at the centre was making decisions on their behalf and, and it was taking a long time for the message to kind of filter through. And so it's not really that surprising that things are 
are moving very slowly in the, in the better direction now. I also felt that there was a huge amount of anxiety within prisons, both among the prisoners and the staff. You know, I was there during, you know, peak COVID, as it were. Things were slightly beginning to relax, but there were still lots of concerns. I sat in a meeting. There's a prison, a Category A prison, a high security prison called Full Sutton. And I attended a, a, a prisoner's representatives meeting with the governor there. And because of, you know, the lockdown restrictions, they were all sitting miles apart. There were all these men of different ethnicities in the room. Half of them I later discovered were murderers, killers. And uh, that didn't seem to matter, but they were all representing the point of view of their wings. And, and what the message they were giving to the governor was in this in this rather strange meeting that I attended was, you know, that they were concerned that uh, staff were coming onto their landing and they might not be pro- properly wearing the right PPE, the right masks. And, you know, the prisoners were, you know, these hardened uh, uh, criminals were very anxious about catching the COVID. And I suspect that a degree of that, you know, is still a legacy for for prisons, that it's going to take a while for that mindset to change. Charlie, I wonder, could you give our our listeners more of an understanding of the expectations that are placed on prisons in in this country to return to a sort of pre-COVID way of functioning? And are there implications for them if they don't meet those expectations? Well, that's part of the difficulty, I think, is that there isn't enough drive coming from the centre as well. So there isn't enough drive coming from the prison service. We make a big fuss in the inspectorate about levels of purposeful activity, about the fact that we walk around prisons and see empty workshops, empty classrooms. In one jail, miles almost, it felt like, of overgrown farms and gardens areas where there was just simply nothing going on at all. We make a big fuss about that, but I think the drive from the centre isn't necessarily there and therefore prisons aren't opening up. I think sometimes there are distractions within prisons like levels of overcrowding and the, and the mini-crisis we had before Christmas about having enough places for prisoners and prisoners being housed in the short term in police stations. But ultimately, these are institutions who have two responsibilities. They have a responsibility to be safe places, to keep the public safe while people are in prison. But they also have a responsibility to make people less likely to offend when they come out. And what we're particularly concerned about is that if prisoners are going into prison, they're not getting support with learning to read, they're not being given the skills they need to get jobs when they come out. The risk is they will come straight out of prison and go back into offending again. Well, David, do you think, related to Charlie's point there, do you think that part of the apathy we might see towards this issue from politicians perhaps and and members of the public too is that with so much that seems to be to be quite frank going wrong in the country at the moment from ambulance waiting times through to booking a gp and all the rest of it train strikes that it is actually just quite hard to get politicians to focus on prisoners who a lot of members of the public might think well you know why should why should they get the focus of sort of political attention when everything else seems to be going so badly wrong in the country Absolutely. Well, I mean, of course, it's famously the case that prisoners' rights is hardly a, a, a vote winner. You know, we should be so grateful that uh, somebody like Charlie is in post and, and, and holding all the people to account who, you know, for whom really the more punitive they are with prisoners, the happier the, the public seems to be, because that seems to be the general kind of approach. But thank goodness there are, you know, enlightened people within the prison surface who do want to, uh, to see the best for prisoners, who want to see the best outcomes and uh, who want to see people getting the best opportunity to, you know, to lead a, a better, fuller life when they come out without reoffending. My concern, I must say, leaving the prisons at the end of 
you know, the research I did for that article was the the, the impact on prisoners' mental health, uh, you know, just being, of having all these things taken away from them, the opportunity to, to train, to be in education, to see members of their family. I met a young man at one of the training prisons that Charlie has referred to, a place called HMP ISIS. And I met this young guy who, who'd had a, a baby born uh, just before lockdown began. And he, because his partner couldn't come and bring the child to see him, he hadn't seen the baby. And you could see this was a, a source of anxiety to him. That and not being able to go to the gym because he was a bodybuilder, a keep fit fanatic, which is something else that you know young people in prisons like to do. So I think that there are really important issues for prisons to address moving forward. And do you think as well that we, we underestimated perhaps the scale of the job that prison workers did during lockdown? As you say in your piece, amid all the clapping for key workers, prison officers never get a mention. Yes, I mean, you know, they're, they're little sort of closed communities, aren't they? They're often like the old mental health asylums, it seems to me. They're sort of tucked away on the outskirts of places or, or in some, you know, I live not far from Wandsworth and uh, there's, a, there's a prison there in the, in the middle of the borough, the London borough, and there's this sort of, sort of blank, grim Victorian wall that you walk past not really knowing anything about the life inside. People forget what it's like. And, and there were definitely, I spoke to... Uh, prison officers who felt quite bitter almost about the fact that you know all the 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 health workers were were getting all this applause all these plaudits from the public but no one was thinking uh, I don't remember ever hearing anyone say oh you know let's have a clap for prison officers quite a few felt that and obviously you know many of them carried on going to work and I suppose you could say they showed some courage in in continuing to do that and the possibility of capturing of, of getting COVID in prison was probably as great as it was in hospitals in some cases, they, you know, they deserve uh, some approbation for that, I reckon. Can I just pick up a point that, that I mean, I absolutely agree with that and, and that prison officers have been really unsung public sector heroes, really, during COVID. The same risks as other people in public sector, but, but simply not getting the attention. But I just pick up an, another point that David made, which I thought was really interesting about the public and the public views of prisoners. And, and if I went down to my local pub and I started trying to make an argument about human rights for prisoners... I probably wouldn't get very far. However, given that most people who are in prison are going to come out one day, if, if I find if you make the argument that says, look, what do you want these people to be like when they come out? Do you want them to be living on benefits? Do you want them terrorising their local neighbourhood? Do you want them failing to take care of their families? Or do you want them working? Do you want them looking after their children properly? Do you want them to be successful citizens? Then I think the argument about decency in prison and decent conditions and giving prisoners the skills they need to be able to be successful when they come out is an argument that does play with the public. Charlie and David, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, opera singer and comedian Melinda Hughes writes in the magazine that Radio 3 is failing classical music lovers by copying the likes of Classic FM and Scala Radio. She is now so exasperated that she has started tuning into European radio stations instead. She joins me now alongside Sir Nicholas Kenyon, former commissioner of Radio 3 and The Telegraph's opera critic. Melinda, what was the moment when you decided to switch stations? <laughs> well, I've always been a very loyal Radio 3 listener. And I think for me, the most important part of the day is the morning where I tend to gather my thoughts and write and I've always listened to classical music in the morning and I've always listened to Radio 3 
But recently, in the mix, it's not just classical music anymore. They've ventured into sort of uh, uh, further territory of uh, sort of easy listening, soft jazz, uh, which is all fine, but I don't feel that it works for the morning and it certainly doesn't work for me. So, yeah, I stopped listening to it uh, recently. I got so frustrated. It annoys me in the morning so much, so much so that I sort of, out of an act of defiance... (laughs) switch to something else and uh get quite principled in my decisions and uh, nicholas what do you what do you make of that i mean as as a former controller of bbc radio 3 have you heard similar complaints before in your tenure oh for heaven's sake yes i mean uh, radio 3 has been accused of dumbing down since time immemorial since it started and I'm very impressed that Melinda should go as far as thinking to throw her radio across the room. That that shows a really passionate degree of commitment to Radio 3 and what it stands for. But <laughs> look, in the morning, people are doing other things. People are not sitting down with two loudspeakers listening to their radio 101%. And I think we have to acknowledge the fact that different times of the day suggest different kinds of radio listening. And there are many, many moments on Radio 3 where there are still complete works. Melinda mentions the lunchtime concert. There's the, the evening relays, which are whole concerts. And I think that that is indicating a slightly different sort of attention and a slightly different sort of listening from what goes on in the morning. You know, these are are matters of taste. And I think the the other important thing in what Melinda says is the way the repertory has been broadening. And I think on that, although it wasn't true in my time, I would be completely unapologetic about the way that that has happened in recent years because it reflects people's taste. And there is much more mixing of genres in the way that people relate to classical music and to an extent the boundaries are down between that genre and other genres. And I think it's only fair that Radio 3 can reflect that from time to time. Nick, I just want to hold you up on this point. (laughs) Yes, I mean, I'm all for crossing genres and I'm all for fusion, absolutely. But I do feel that needs to be done with integrity. And you will find a lot of classical musicians who do keep that high level of of musicianship. I, I... if if Radio Three does do this type of playlist in the in the morning, it is absolutely in direct competition with two other radio stations which are doing exactly the same thing at exactly the same time, and you are uh, at a risk of losing your loyal listeners when you start aping Classic FM and Scala Radio. We don't need this, and where does any where do we go? Where do the people like me, the people who like the classics of the classics? Uh, classical music where do we go and you know I'm sure that many British people won't be too happy to hear that I'm turning to France (laughs) my (laughs) musical inspiration but um you know you don't don't feel in comparison with the commercial radio stations that you mentioned that the Radio 3 offer is broader in terms of repertory I mean, I do listen in the mornings, not regularly, but from time to time these days. And I hear a greater 
range of music. It's not just a hundred greatest hits. It is music to surprise and stimulate, always very well set up, I would say, by Georgia Mann, who's a very, you acknowledge, is a very skillful presenter. So I think there are still big differences between the Radio 3 approach to programming and the commercial radio approach to programming, which has the direct aim, if you like, of not making people switch off. Well, it's done it to me. <laughs> and uh, and I feel it's a slippery slope. And I feel also, more importantly, it's an, a, a problem of a brand identity. You know, I personally don't need to listen to jazz. I love to listen to jazz, but it's an early evening thing for me and for many people. I don't need to listen to Scott Joplin or the, or the soundtrack to Jaws. There's a lot of classical music, which, yes, I agree with you, the scope is very broad, but actually they could go more broadly into the classical repertoire and examine that. Um, when I do listen to um, Europe, uh, European radio, uh, we can say European because we're not European anymore, um, I do get um, classical music that I've actually never heard on Radio 3, funnily enough. I, I, uh, I, I find that quite interesting. And I just, I just feel that we should be broadening our horizons up and aspiring up rather than d- I really do feel that it's dumbing down. Well, Melinda, what would you say to, and I'm in no way saying that this is what Nicholas is saying, but uh, what would you say to any accusation that this is a sort of snobbery? Your argument is a sort of snobbery against people who, who, who might want this broader repertoire of music? Perhaps. I'd really like to have a, I'd really like to have a poll, you know, to really find out exactly what Radio 3, the hardcore Radio 3 listeners think. And I'm sure that, yes, of course, radio music, the radio is background for many people and maybe people will be ambivalent about it. But I would just be interested to know. I mean, I personally feel it's patronising. I feel that I just don't think that it fits in with a brand. And when you start to mess with a brand, it's very difficult to retain and actually bring get back your audience. Well, Scala has an interesting playlist. They do uh, much more interesting than Classic FM, actually. Mm, yes. And a slightly smaller audience, I no doubt. It's very interesting what you say about brand, because what surely we don't want is a brand image of Radio 3 that is stuffy and intellectual and elitist, because that was so often the, if not the brand, then at least the image of Radio 3 in the past. And that was what we tried to change in my time by putting presenters on the air who rather than just reading musicologically worthy scripts about what they were presenting spoke from a position of knowledge and enthusiasm and those two things together are not incompatible and I think that that is really the aim of just opening the window a bit on Radio 3 and showing that it can speak to a wide variety of people who may never have thought of encountering it in the first place. Absolutely, and you did a fantastic job, and I think that's a really, really important component. And I've been on Intune many times, adore Sean Rafferty, and he makes everything very easy and approachable. He's got a twinkly sense of humour. Actually, it is very much to do with the presenters. A lot of classical musicians are now much more approachable and a lot more on social media, but you can still retain the integrity of classical music 
music. In fact, even more so, let's not dumb down to the audience. Let's keep the music high, make it more approachable with, with uh, presenters who are fun and zany and sexy and have a sense of humour, whatever, slash, slash, slash. You know, actually, you're bringing your people into the classical world. I don't believe you're going to bring people into the classical world by playing Louis Armstrong. <laughs> I think I think you've just got to loosen up a bit, yeah, <laughs> and realize that the the younger generation doesn't make those distinctions of genre with the fierceness that we do. From my exalted age, it is something that I grew up with: the idea of classical music as a fenced-off mm -hmm. genre, and really think that that is is loosening up now and that is a good thing the the word i like that you're using here is integrity it has to be done with integrity and it has to be done with quality and excellence but i don't think we're saying that some of those non-classical non-pure classical things that you mention lack integrity they need to be put in the right context and I think maybe that's what you're getting at here and I would tend to agree with that some of these programs jump too randomly between genres and I think it is fair to say they need to be set up they need to be sympathetically introduced but I don't think and of course the magazine will want to turn this into a full-scale attack on the whole of Radio 3. And it doesn't sound to me, from what you're saying, that it is that. It's part of the schedule which doesn't meet your needs. And everybody is perfectly entitled to have that. Yeah. <laughs> My favourite, favourite original Radio Times cartoon in the early days of the third programme showed this professorial character talking on the phone and next to him there's this young boy uh, bound and gagged on a chair and he's saying no need to hurry home darling Julian and I are thoroughly enjoying the third program <laughs> and there was that sort of feeling <laughs> that it was good for you but it wasn't for me and I think that's that's what of course, it's a very difficult balance, but I think that's what Alan Davy has done well over this period, and I'm absolutely sure that Sam Jackson will in the next period. Melinda and Nicholas, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.